To be honest, my friends and I always kind of wondered why there was a hotel in Morton at all. A good 45 minutes from the nearest major city and hardly boasting anything that would be a major draw for tourists, Morton always seemed to us like the kind of town that you would pass through on your way to somewhere else. Unless, of course, like my friends and I, you were unfortunate enough to live there. Sure, there were big town occasions like the Heritage Weekends every now and again, the odd moment when most of the town would turn up in the center and there would be events and stalls and stuff, but even then it was more of a local thing and it only lasted two days, hardly enough to justify a hotel taking up real estate just off the town square, with its doors open all year long. I suppose you could make the case that Stain and Morton would give you access to the woods, hills and moorland that give the town its name. If I was a keen walker or hiker, then perhaps that would be enough of an attraction to keep me here for a night or two. But to be honest, if I then looked around and found that the only option for accommodation was the dolphin, I think I'd change my plans and decide not to stay after all. A rundown, shabby excuse for a hotel, the dolphin with its faded blue sign and an incongruous name considering that the nearest beach was around 200 miles away occupied an old stone-built Victorian building across from the train station and looked for all the world like it hadn't changed, altered, or been cleaned since the day it opened. Tatty, tobacco-stained net curtains hung down in each window blocking the view of all the rooms, but the chintzy-laden reception area which looked like something from a child's dollhouse, all dollies, carriage clocks, and tarnished silver. To give you an idea of just how poorly regarded the dolphin was in the eyes of those living in Morton, Looking for it on TripAdvisor or some similar website would yield exactly zero results. So dull and utterly forgettable was the place that nobody staying there from outside of Morton had ever bothered to fill in a review. Meanwhile, nobody actually living in the town would be caught dead staying there, nor would they need to if they lived close by. Unless, of course, like my mate Doyle, you were somehow drawn there. I had actually been with Doyle that night. Somehow, the snow always put him in a drinking mood, and we spent the majority of the evening in one of our favorite pubs. Doyle, as usual, taking in far more than I did in terms of pints and whiskey chasers, and pulling off his patented magic trick of somehow becoming incredibly drunk whilst never actually paying for a round. I half carried him out the door, hollered my goodnights, and asked if he'd be okay getting home. Having seen him stagger and saunter back up the road in this manner for many years, I wasn't overly concerned, save for the fact that the snow had really come down whilst we were inside and it was bitterly cold outside. Still, I knew Doyle only lived about five minutes from the pub and the journey wouldn't take him long even in his half-pickled state, so I left him and went on my merry way. I remember walking away and watching him half-slide, half-stagger through the slush slants of snow falling upon him as he ambered from the orange glow of one of the streetlights next to him. He'll be fine, I remember thinking, though of course, he wasn't. The next I heard from Doyle was about five days later, when we met again at the same pub to repeat the entire process over again. When I saw him at the bar, I could tell immediately that the last few days had been somewhat trying for him. As soon as I sat down, he puffed out his cheeks in aspiration. You'll never believe where I ended up the other night, he began. Apropos of nothing. In response, I didn't answer but simply looked at him puzzled. 
an expression that was meant to convey the idea that I hadn't the foggiest notion what he was on about. When I left you, you were on your way home, I said, taking a sip of my pint and handing what would be surely the first of many I purchased for Doyle that night over to him. Did you fall in love with a snowman on your way home or something? Decide to spend the night at his and make sweet frosty love? I smiled at my own crude joke. Doyle didn't. I don't remember leaving the pub, he muttered, dryly. But when I woke up, I wasn't in my bed. I snickered and sat back in my chair, pretending to be shocked and appalled. You dirty dog, I said, loud enough to make the old man in the corner look up from his beer. Who did you bump into? I asked with a wry smile. I mean, I assume you must have literally bumped into them because you could hardly bloody walk when you left me. Again, I snickered, and again Doyle didn't laugh long. I woke up at the dolphin, he said flatly. I nearly choked on my beer. The dolphin? That manky old hotel opposite the station. What the hell made you want to stay there when you could have gone home? Did you forget your key or something? Immediately, a possible sequence of events sprang to mind. Doyle, half frozen and covered in snow, either fumbling in his pockets in a vain attempt to find his keys or trying and missing repeatedly as he attempted to put the key into the lock with his fingers frozen stiff. One way or another, I reasoned, he had clearly been unable to get into his house and having at least the good sense to get out of the snow, had decided to head to the dolphin for a warm bed and a less hypothermic-inducing place to sleep. All Doyle would say when I suggested this was the same three words over and over. I don't know. Over the course of the next few hours, Doyle explained how he had woken up in the morning, unable to remember anything about how he'd gotten there and how he'd been terrifyingly confused about where he was. According to him, he had woken up, fully clothed, laying on the bed, in a cool, airy room that seemed to him seemed to be decorated almost entirely in white linen or lace. Panicked, he had sat bolt upright and run to the window, pulling back the net curtain in an attempt to work out where he was and how the hell he had gotten there. It was only when he saw the train station, solid, stone-made, and sturdily real, squatting heavily on the other side of the road, that he managed to convince himself that he wasn't dreaming and for the first time began to get his bearings. The thing is, the whole place was silent, he said in a half-muttered whisper. And I don't mean quiet, I mean silent. Completely. Like everything was perfectly still. And in the air, the place hadn't been disturbed for years. I know it sounds weird because with it being opposite the station, there should have been traffic noise or sound of people coming out of the station. But there was nothing. The windows aren't even double glazed and yet there wasn't a sound. For a minute I thought I'd gone deaf. It's weird, but... It was like a heavy silence, like something you could touch, as if they'd found the silence and built the hotel around it. Anyway, I didn't want to stick around, so I went downstairs, but there was no one around, not a soul on the desk, in any of the rooms, nobody. I must have stumbled around for a half an hour, calling down the corridors and knocking on doors, but nothing. You know, it's funny considering where it is, but... I don't even know who owns the place or how to get in touch with them, so I, I just left. When I checked my credit card the next day, I had a charge on it, but it was for two pence. I mean, what the hell's that for a night's stay? Two pence. I shook my head, baffled by the whole event, 
and asked if Doyle planned to go back to see if he could find anyone working there and settle up what he owed. Oddly, he seemed to shrink and flinch at the suggestion. His hands tightened around his drink and his eyes stared off into the middle distance. Finally, he again blew out his cheeks and with a heavy sigh shifted in his seat to face me. Can I tell you something? He asked, with a very serious edge to his voice. I nodded, of course, and waited in anxious expectation of what he would say next. It wasn't just that night, he said bluntly. Last night, the night before, and the night before that. I don't know if it's sleepwalking or what, but for the last three nights, I've gone to bed in my own house, locked the doors, checked on the dogs, and got into bed myself, but around 5 a.m. the next morning, I've woken up in that room at the Dolphin Hotel, fully dressed, lying in the middle of the bed. I stared at Doyle for a long time, wondering for a moment if he was having me on. Then I asked if he remembered speaking to anyone at reception, booking a night's stay or even leaving his house. He explained that as far as he knew, he had just gone to bed as normal. He had no recollection whatsoever of speaking to anyone on reception, and each morning when he got up, he found the place equally as deserted. The only thing is, and I know this is going to sound mental, I know, but I don't know how else to explain it. But every time I wake up there, the silence in this place, I don't know, louder. I mean, I know that doesn't make sense. How can silence be quiet or loud? But it seems that way, like someone's playing a track of just silence and each day they turn up the volume. It's weird, but I really hate that room. I mean, there's nothing threatening in there. It's just the bed with a big white stitched bedspread a bedside table and a lamp, and a few other bits of furniture all white and covered over, but I don't know, I can't explain it. That night Doyle stayed at my house, remained there for the entire evening. A week later, he was dead. His body was found fully clothed in his best suit, arms folded over his chest as if he was already lying in his coffin, lying on the bed in an upstairs room of the Dolphin Hotel. The official cause was heart failure. Why he had chosen to go there, who had let him in each night, and why he had been charged a fee of only pence for each night's stay, I don't think we'll ever know. What I did find out a few weeks later from old Max Tanner, the local undertaker, was that this was the fifth individual in less than two years whom he had been called to pick up from the Dolphin Hotel. All of them lived within ten minutes of the place and had no reason to have chosen to spend the night. When I asked if any of the others had stayed at the Dolphin before the night they had died, he gave me a strange look, as if I'd touched a nerve or mentioned something that I perhaps shouldn't have. At first he seemed reticent to answer, but when I explained what had been happening to Doyle, his strange midnight saunters to the hotel and his lack of any memory, Tanner seemed to soften a little, and pulling me to one side confined to me two pieces of information. The first was that in every case he had dealt with, the family had mentioned something about the deceased visiting the hotel in the week before. He wasn't entirely sure what that meant, except that in one case the old lady had dementia and would wander out of her home, up to the dolphin and make herself comfortable in one of the rooms. The family had found her there several times but had never been able to contact the owners to settle up the bill. The second thing he mentioned almost as an aside not explicably linking it to what had happened to Doyle or any of the others, but simply offering it as a tidbit of information for me to consider. You know, 
he asked. Well, the place is called the Dolphin, don't you? I shook my head, remembering the many times I had laughed about how inappropriate the name seemed for a place with no nautical links. It was an inside joke back in the early 1920s when the place was turned into a hotel. The building you see used to be owned by a fellow called Mr. D. Elfin. His name's carved over the door. It's still there if you ever want to look. I smiled at this, wondering how this nugget of local history was relevant to the conversation. Tanner went on. Ah, Mr. Elfin was fairly successful around here. My father knew him and actually took the business off him after he moved up to another building on High Road, the same business he passed down to me. What Tanner had explained to me in a roundabout way was that the Dolphin wasn't always a hotel. In fact, back at the turn of the century, when it was owned by Mr. D. Elfin, the local undertaker, the entire building, and particularly the room where Doyle was found, had been used as a funeral parlor. <laughs> 